Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. My name is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and this is session number 190 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings as we, in fact, approach the very end. Indeed, tonight I am suspecting we shall get to the last slide of the Council of Elrond. But we have uh, a... Uh, really interesting and important passage and indeed a passage that puzzled me for a really long time but i i have a notion uh that i lately have uh, uh figured it out at least part of it out um so we will um um we will see about that we will see about that but uh so let's uh, uh jump well almost jump straight into it um last thing I wanted to mention, just uh, that there's still time to sign up for MythMoot. Uh, MythMoot is happening next week, next week. So when we have next week's class, it will be my last broadcast before MythMoot. So um, we will be meeting next week, um, but uh, then I'm on the road after that. So really excited uh, for MythMoot. So happy to see so many. I know a bunch of you who are here are going to be there, um, and I'm uh, I'm really looking forward to that. We've got a great group of folks coming, both to the corporeal uh, event in Leesburg, Virginia, and to the virtual event uh, in our Moot Hub registration, and many, of course, who can't really be around or available as much during that time, um, but who have registered for Moot Cast, which is the uh, the sort of just the just the broadcast version, um, and also most importantly, gives you access to the archives um, of the recordings of all of the sessions. And by the way, I should stress that those who register for Moot Hub and for the corporeal in-person thing will also get access to the recorded archives. Um, we started doing this a couple years ago, and it has been uh, so liberating for me. I I'm sure many of you can relate to this sort of situation where you're in a conference like this and there are three different panels going on and you've got to choose one and you want to be at all of them or two or three. And um, that's... Um, uh, and it's it's really, really hard. Right. But uh, now you can actually get access to all of them so that you don't I mean, you still have to choose. You can only be in one at a time. Um, but um, anyway, that's going to be um, uh, it's uh, it's easy. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Uh, Zephan, uh, first time corporeal myth mooter here. Excellent. Wonderful. Yes. And Valori is going to be there running our room of requirement, um, which is great. Uh, so anyway, it's going to be it's going to be a great time. Really looking forward to seeing folks there. Looking forward to interacting with folks who are coming on Moot Hub. Um, and again, even if you uh, if you can't be around during the weekend, that's the 24th through the 27th next Thursday uh, evening through next Sunday afternoon. Um, then you can still join us through Mootcast and get access to all of the uh, wonderful sessions and everything. So. Um, Anyway, just wanted to make sure to remind everybody there's still time to sign up for that. We've been getting registrations here the um, um, the last few uh, the last few days, um, so I see that the things are still rolling in, and I just want to encourage folks to uh, check that out and. Um, uh, see what you can do. Yes, I see several people asking about uh, regional moots. I have to admit that I am not doing much concrete planning yet because we're still our team is focused on myth moot, but. In a couple weeks, we shall turn ourselves to more concrete planning of our regional moots. And absolutely, I am excited um, to go as full bore as we can. The big question mark is still the international ones. Um, I saw somebody mention um, uh, 
um, Canada. Absolutely. Um, I have been wanting, we, in fact, we're close. We, we, we had Maple Moot penciled in in Toronto um, for August of 2020, but then 2020 happened. Um, so, um, uh, but yeah, definitely, definitely thinking about that. But I, um, um, so yeah, but, but again, it's all about the borders, right? You know, when we can cross the borders into Canada, um, which as somebody who lives in New Hampshire, I, I miss Canada, you know, I haven't been to Canada in a long time now and I really want to go back to Canada. Um, but, um, anyway, so, uh, we also had wonderful plans to do dragon moot over in Wales, uh, for our Europe moot. Um, and of course we were rapidly approaching Nippon moot, our first ever, uh, uh, moot in Japan, um, when, uh, uh, when COVID rolled around. So definitely hoping to kind of return to a bunch of those, uh, possibilities. The international ones are still uncertain, but domestic ones, uh, definitely. Uh, and I am, uh, um, excited about that. Uh, um, definitely looking to move forward. I would like to revive all of our old moots, Magnolia moot in the South, Sunshine moot in Florida, um, SoCal moot and Bay moot uh, in Southern and Central California. Um, we, we're working to add Buckeye moot in Iowa. We're doing New England moot for sure. Um, we're going to, I'd love to add one in the Pacific Northwest. Several people were, uh, um, were, were, talking about that Seattle absolutely um that would be really really fun um um yeah <laughs> Dime you know there would be some who would come to the Alaska moot you know the Helcaraxa moot yeah yeah no I hear that yeah Dime it would be fun it would be fun. Um, oh, did I say Iowa? I meant Ohio. I was thinking of Iowa because we're definitely doing middle moot in Iowa, which is also happening. Sorry, I was combining two moots in one place there. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, lots of um, um, lots of fun options. As I say, we'll come back around to that when we get the regional moot calendar kind of ironed out a little bit more. I'll definitely share that with you guys. Um, but um, anyway... Um, let us jump back into the text here. So we had gotten to mostly uh, through Elrond's first reaction, his keen glance and his uh, reaction to Frodo's volunteering, right? Um, and now I want to do the second paragraph. But it is a heavy burden, so heavy that none could lay it on another. I do not lay it on you, but if you take it freely... I will say that your choice is right, and though all the mighty elf friends of old, Hador and Hurin and Turin and Beren himself were all assembled together, your seat should be among them. Okay. Um, so, um, two parts of this paragraph. I would divide into two parts, right? First, his emphasis. Notice how he goes out, not only, he's already gone out of his way, right? I mean, you could argue the entire council was Elrond going out of his way to make sure that nobody laid that burden on another, right? That Frodo didn't just get opted, right? That he volunteered. It is a heavy burden, so heavy that none could lay it on another, I do not lay it on you. Um, and again, there were several times <clears throat> earlier in the council when we were saying, 
is Elrond just building up to this? You know, is he laying the foundation for Frodo? You know, is it even Frodo, of course, as we were discussing, is imagining that, you know, others are looking at him, right, when when it's time, when it's volunteering time. Um, and he's wondering if people are um, if people are looking out the corners of their eyes at him or whatever. Um, but um, I um, I think that um, it's here he is making explicit something that has been implicit for a long time, right? It was absolutely crucial. The council needed to come here. They could have saved a lot of time, right? Um, even if, you know, I'm not trying to say the entire council is worthless for any other real, like it's all a, a runaround or something like that, right? I mean, other things, and, and I do believe Elrond when he says that he himself has learned things at the council, which, you know, have made things clear to him. So I'm not trying to say that it's all fake or something like that. But I am saying that um, certainly Frodo could have been nominated, right? I mean, when they were talking about who can carry the ring and there was, you know, they were discussing the Tom Bombadil question as he was somebody who apparently could touch it without being affected by it. Um <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing for a second. I saw several of you um, uh, referencing my recent, um, my newest video on Wired, uh, my Tolkien support, a Tolkien tech support video on Wired. And it's funny because that video has led to this surge of Tom Bombadil questions. Holy cow. I'm asking, answering Tom Bombadil questions day and night uh, ever since then. Um, and lots of people asking questions about Tom Bombadil and Tom Bombadil in the ring. I'm so glad that we had, uh, we've gotten to that passage and discussed that, um, that bit. It's really helped me in trying to answer some of these questions, but uh, uh, it's been, yeah, that's been like by far the biggest run. Like everybody, everybody is talking about Tom Bombadil <laughs> since, since since then. I don't know why it's everybody's favorite question all of a sudden. I mean, it's always been a popular one, uh, of course, but um, but yeah, last time there was not this kind of like fixation uh, on one topic. It's been amazing. But anyway, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Now that's interesting, Cook, um, that, you know, he says, I really do think that the biggest, most important consequence of the council as a whole is the spiritual slash moral endorsement of each race of the free peoples of Middle Earth. I agree. There's a, there's a kind of empowerment there, right? Uh, there's a kind of empowerment in, uh, in the council. Um, and of course, affirmed by Elrond at the beginning, stating that he did not call them, right? He believes that they were called, but not by him. Right. Um, that there is some kind of ordaining that has happened, that has brought this council, um, this gathering into being. Um, and so there is a kind of endorsement, right, of of everything there. Um, and I think that that's um, uh, that's important. I think that that's really, really good. Um, so. <laughs> yeah, Terlonio says we're all in this together. Even the elves who keep elves who keep running for the ocean. Uh, yes, yes, we're all in this together. <laughs> Even Galdor, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. So I like the fact that Elrond comes back and makes this explicit. Um, he's not going to, you know, he's. He doesn't respond to this, just saying, 
Okay, great. Excellent. Thank you. So glad you volunteered. That's done. Shall we move on like quick before he can change his mind or something? Because he knows. He knows this is a terrible job that Frodo is volunteering for. And remember, Gandalf knows. Gandalf had that moment when he was looking at Frodo um, while Frodo was lying in bed in chapter one of book two. And he, Gandalf had that moment where he's looking at him and he's thinking about what's going to happen to Frodo. Um, and he knows it's not going to be all bad, but it is not going to be good. Um, Frodo is going to suffer. Frodo is signing up for suffering. Um, and Elrond, it's very um, um, important, I think, for Elrond explicitly um, to affirm that here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so heavy that none could lay it on. And, and the emphasis, I do not lay it on you, right? Um, like, he's making almost a public performance of it, right? Like, let... It's not like re let the record show, right? But, like, let everyone observe. He's sort of dramatically drawing attention to Frodo's choice of will, his free choice of will, right? First, he draws Frodo's attention to it, and then it's like he draws everyone's attention. I do not lay it on you, he says to Frodo in front of everybody, right? Like, don't let anybody think that what just happened here. I don't want anybody leaving this room thinking that what happened at the end of this council was, you know, at the end of Elrond's council, you know, uh, the council or Elrond himself, you know, laid the, you know, laid this upon Frodo, you know, laid this burden, assigned this quest to Frodo of the Shire. Um, that is not what has happened. I do not lay it on you, but if you take it freely, I will say that your choice is right. Notice how interesting that if is under the circus. Frodo just did, right? He just did. But notice how Elrond is doing the opposite of saying, you know, done and sold, right? I mean, he could be like, okay, no backsies, Frodo. So glad you volunteered. That's excellent. Um, but again, he doesn't do that. He's doing the opposite. Even though Frodo has volunteered, he has taken it freely. Elrond still gives him an out here. If you take it freely, I will say that your choice is right. Um, Frodo can still back out. He's going to let Frodo back out. It's not over, right? It's, it's, it's okay. Um, yeah, Belongsmond, I agree. To some extent, this is Elrond saying, are you sure, right? Are, are you sure? He's, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna check this, right? But at the same time, he's going to affirm him, right? If you take it freely, I will say that your choice is right. Um, I think that that's the right call. I think that you are the person to do it. Elrond apparently didn't want to say that before Frodo spoke up and has been waiting for Frodo to speak up before he said this. He could have made this suggestion before. He, in some ways, kind of hinted at it. Um, but now that Frodo has spoken, he can affirm I will say that your choice is right. Based on everything that I've heard, based on everything that I see, I believe that, the, you know, we talked about them trying to figure out, like, what is the story, right? 
what, what kind of story are they in? How is this supposed to go? That's what I hear Elrond saying here. Yes, you, Frodo of the Shire, are the hero that, the, hero, the protagonist of this story that is happening. Right. This is how things are supposed to be. And we talked last time about, you know, sort of the connections back to Gandalf's sentiment about um, how it might be a comforting thought. Right. To know that he was meant to find the to meant to, to have the ring. Um, and. Uh, um, and how at that time it certainly didn't seem very comforting um, at this time still might not be a very comforting thought. But to me. It sounds and feels more comforting to Frodo, and I think that Elrond is certainly wanting to comfort Frodo, to affirm Frodo in this. Um, it doesn't guarantee that Frodo's going to succeed. He's not guaranteeing success. Elrond isn't, right? He's not, and even less, is he guaranteeing comfort, safety, right, uh, for Frodo. He's not saying, oh, yeah, you got this, Frodo, right? Um you um you're gonna you're just gonna knock this one out of the park, Frodo, right? I mean it's not that kind of a pep talk that he's giving him, right? What he's saying is your choice is right. I don't know how it's gonna end. Um we don't know. We still don't know what kind of story it is in that sense, right? Um is it going to and remember Gandalf also was expressing in that scene when he's looking at Frodo in bed, um, uncertainty. Um uncertainty about what um, uh, what's going to lie ahead for Frodo, how Frodo's story um, is going to end. Um, yeah, yeah. Bjorn and Exile, I agree. It's another chance to point out the rightness of Frodo's choice and the council's choice to send the ring to the fire, especially to others who might doubt. Right? And you're thinking perhaps Boromir in particular. Um, maybe. Maybe. Um, but now let's get to the statement, the really striking statement. But if you take it freely, I will say that your choice is right. And though all the mighty elf friends of old, Hador and Hurin and Turin and Baron himself were assembled together, your seat should be among them. Um, Matt, I think you were asking about the commas there. Um, which I agree is pretty striking. And it seems to me just to be for cadence, right? I mean, there's no grammatical need um, to combine the commas and conjunctions all the way through that list, right? Um, Hador and Hurin and Turin and Baron himself. Um, it seems to me a uh, a cadence thing, right? Um now, several of you are suggesting um, what I always thought when reading this. Um, I was like, Hador, cool. Baron himself, awesome. Hurin, yeah, yeah, he was pretty awesome. And Turin, and I'm like, wait, hang on. Turin is the one that always threw this list off for me. I didn't understand. Um, mighty elf friends of old. Okay, I mean, now, Turin is mighty. Um, Tur Turin is mighty, no question. But I can't imagine that he's saying mighty, literally, like 
strength of 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 hand and arm, right? Um, that can't just be the, what he's referring to. Even though Hurin, Turin, Baron, and Hador, I do not doubt, were all in fact mighty thewed gentlemen. Um, Frodo is clearly not, right? So this is not a world's strongest elf friend competition, right? So I do not take the mighty elf friends of old um, in that kind of literal sense, right? Um, so we can't, therefore, I cannot be satisfied with getting Turin in on that kind of technicality, right? Just because he was one of the greatest or one of the greatest warriors. Um, now, um, somebody was pointing to the obvious um, omission here. Praise was. Yes, praise. Exactly. No love for Tuor? Tuor doesn't make the list. Turin makes the list. But Tuor does not make the list. Really? Okay. Tuor, not on the list, but Turin is on the list. Okay, okay. Um, so, right, Eorendil, Gilgaladi, right, sure, I, I hear that, I hear that. Now, you know, throwing your own dad into the list, like, you know, might possibly hit a little too close to home. Um, now, obviously, this can't be an exhaustive list. Like, it's fine if it's not exhaustive. Like, I'm not saying, I'm not just pointing out that... Um, you know, he forgot one and shame on him for forgetting one or two or three. What I'm saying is, what does it tell us about this list that Turin makes it and Tuor doesn't? Right? This, so what I was trying to figure out, what I spent a lot of time trying to understand was, what do these four elf friends of old have in common with each other and, by extension, with Frodo? Right. How was it in what exact group? Right. It's not so it's it's not just mightiest of arm. Obviously, Frodo is that would be a little bit comical to say of Frodo. Um, um, it's not his strength as a warrior, clearly. So that's not relevant here either. Um, what is it then? What is it that when Elrond was reaching for names, reaching for names to illustrate the kind of company Right. That the, 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 the kinds of other members, it's the identification of the story. Right. What kind of story is this? It's this kind of story. Your story is like Baron's story, like Hurin's story, like Hador's story, like Baron's story. Um, OK, so. How, how, what exactly is it? And this is where I think Tuor's absence is most interesting, right? Because Tuor, um, Tuor, I mean, is obviously one of the mighty elf friends of old. I mean, if someone just like sat all the elves down, right, and said, okay, uh, top five mightiest elf friends of old, you know, start. Who are the greatest of all the elf friends? Um, I'm betting Tour makes the list, right? I don't think Tour is getting left off at too many top fives there, um, but um, but he gets his name isn't one that uh, Elrond reaches for, and there's no excuse that can be drawn from authorial history, right? It's not like you know 
the story of Tuor got developed later or something like that. I mean, as most of you know, the story of Tuor and the fall of Gondolin um, was one of the very first, possibly the very first story uh, that Middle-earth story that Tolkien ever wrote. Uh, so Tuor is his oldest hero from as far as Tolkien's own creative chronology is concerned. So that can't be anything like that either. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, what now? For Thoughtless, I agree. The in many ways, Turin is seems to be the confounding variable, right? Tur- Turin is one who seems weird, like actively strange. Um, like, why does he make the list at all, right? I mean, that he is great, yes. Um, that he was an elf friend, yes. Yes, he was. He was. Um, I mean, certainly uh, Beleg's friendship was a, a very important part of his uh, life and his story. Um, so that alone would count him as an elf friend, I don't doubt, as well as his being raised by Fingal and all that. But I mean, oof. Look, I mean, Turin's career, Turin's story, I mean, how many elves, how many elves experienced a a net gain from their friendship with Turin, you know what I mean? I mean, yikes. I I mean, and he accomplishes a a very great and mighty deed. Um, Slaying Glaurung, big deal. That was a big deal. Um... But, um, but anyway, like it's, and I know JJ that L friendship is not all about gains and losses. It's not like a, what have you done for us lately kind of situation. I, I, I do, I do acknowledge that. Um, but that's not exactly what I mean. I mean that, um, it just, it would seem an odd story for Elrond to allude to here. Right. I mean, I think we can all agree that he's trying to encourage Frodo here, right? He's he is observing Frodo's freedom of will. He is reaffirming, right, and and encouraging him. He's still he's not locked in. He still has time to change his mind. He wants him. He, you could almost translate, um, you know, some of his first statements there to "Don't be hasty." Right? Don't rush into this. It's okay. Think it through and know what you're doing because nobody could force you to do this, right? If you take it freely, right? Still leaves the door open. Okay. And, but then he shifts to encouragement, right? Um, and if it's me, I'm not reaching for Turin there, right? I mean, if I'm trying to boost Frodo's spirits, I'm not saying, hey, um... You know, you could earn a place right next to Turin. You know, um, that's that would give me pause if I were Frodo, right? I mean, like, I'd be tempted to be sitting there and saying, um, God, you still want me to do this, right? Are you, are you trying to tell me that this is a bad idea? Um, yeah, yeah, um... That's, um, Mudmore's asking, does Frodo actually know these names? I'm sure he does. I'm sure he does. Um, we know that Sam knows. Sam 
was quite possibly Bilbo's best student, uh, but Frodo was his protege for a long time. So I have to believe uh, that Bilbo would have taught him these things. Um, Yeah, yeah. Okay. So... Right. Nathan Lorong says, I presume Bilbo basically translated the Silmarillion. Um, yes. 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 Um, does the first time reader know these names? Oh, goodness, no. Oh, no, there's, there's no way. There's no way. I, I mean, I, and especially, Flamifer, if you mean, if by first time you reader, you mean reader in 1954, right? Utterly impossible. None of those names would be known. Um, well, no, Baron would be known because Aragorn just sang the Baron song a few chapters back, right? So um, we've gotten that. Um, but um, but that's it. That's it. Um, yeah. Um, uh, Exo in charge of radishes says this. Uh, does this list require that we re-examine what it means to be an elf friend? I think that that's. Uh, um, that's a a really good question. Um, does it require that we re-examine what it means to be an elf friend? Maybe. Maybe. Now, it's not like he's offering this as a definition of elf friendship, right? Like, you know, you gotta be Hador, Hurin, Turin, Baron, and now Frodo, right? In order to qualify as elf friendship, Right? But if he is saying, you know, these are all the might, though all the mighty elf friends of old, and this is his list, right? So he is certainly suggesting that these four are the mightiest examples of elf friendship. So I do think that we can learn something about um, elf friendship from this list, in a sense. Um, again, it's, it's, and it's, it's not an exhaustive list by any means, right? Um, but, um, yeah, see, could the story of Turin have changed at all since Tolkien wrote this line? Great question. No. <laughs> it was always horrible. It was always horrible. Um, I, um, th- there were changes. Um, there were changes. If you read, like, if so if you've read The Children of Hurin, um, and then you go and you read the Turin Turambar section of Unfinished Tales. Okay. That, those bits, um, those greatly expanded bits that are in Unfinished Tales and that get integrated into the story as a whole, which all gets put together into one large narrative in the Children of Hurin volume. Um, the long bits in Unfinished Tales were written after this. At least after this was written. It was not after it was published, but it was after it was written. Early 50s. So he did develop the story of Turin. Um, But the version that's in the Silmarillion was already there, basically. Essentially. Um, And um, let's see. Turin in the Lay was a bit more likable. Well, it depends on what you like, (laughs) I guess. I mean, he was still Turin. Um... He was still Turin. He was still... Yeah, Lapilia, I have to admit to you. Um, I, um... She says, I can't listen to my audiobook of the Children of Hurin anymore. It's too depressing. Um, 
I have a hard time with the Children of Horan. I have to I have to brace myself to read it. Um, I do read it. I'm actually going to read it soon. Um, I'm finishing Unfinished Tales now, and I'm going to go back to in my regular round of Tolkien reading, and I'm going to come back and reread the Children of Horan next after that. But uh, Lapilia, I am. Um, I skipped the Turin section of Unfinished Tales uh, when I got there because I'm like, I'm going to read The Children of Horan next anyway, so I'm, I am not doing this twice. <laughs> right? It's hard. It's hard. Um, but, um, yeah. Okay. So, um, right. Um <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I see we have some newcomers on YouTube who are kind of startled at uh, how long it's taken us to get here. Yes. Yes. And when I just referred to a couple chapters back when we got the uh, the Aragorn song of 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 uh, Baron, someone was pointing out that the, we discussed that back in 2018. So, yes. Yes, it's true. Um, but um, anyway, I um and I agree with you, Michael Tobias, that Eldarion and Arendus is also fairly hard reading. Um, but, um, okay. Emily, yes. Yes, I believe that's exactly it. So again, we come back to the question. What do these four have in common? Now, Hurin and Beren. Um, when I look at the line, so let's start with Beren. Right. And it's easy to start with Baron, not only because he's the one who is put last and in the place of honor in this list, Baron himself. Right. Um, but the um, uh, the the other reason to start with Baron is that he's not only the one whose story is alluded to most often throughout the Lord of the Rings, but the one whose story Frodo's story is going to be most explicitly paralleled. Um, uh, you know, Baron and Frodo are going to be explicitly paralleled, right? Um, when we get to Sam's insight that they are in the same tale still, right? They're still in the tale of Baron and Luthien. It's going on, right? Um, they, their story, the quest, the trip to Mordor is a continuation. Um, not a retelling, not just a retelling, but a continuation of the story of Baron and Luthien. Um, so, um, so let's start with Baron, and let's start not with Baron and the others. Start with Baron and Frodo, right? Because again, I think it's not just—he's not just making—he's not just blowing gas here. Elrond isn't right. He's not just—it's not mere—it's not just puffery, right? He's not just sort of listing a bunch of awesome people and saying, "Frodo, you're awesome," just like they were awesome vaguely, right? I don't think he's saying that. I think that he's chosen this list. And again, Tuor's absence is what leads me to think that. Because if you're just going to say, let's name some of the most awesome people of the first, you know, most awesome humans, mortals of the first age, Tuor obviously makes the list, right? And probably ahead of Turin. Um, so again, don't think so, right? But Baron and Frodo. Okay, so Baron and Frodo, we can see the parallels there. In what is Frodo's story like Baron's story? Um, it is like he he like Baron is is taking up the quest to dare to enter into the stronghold of the enemy himself. There is no parallel other than Baron and Luthien to what Frodo and Sam are going to end up doing. 
right? Um, Baron uh, went into the throne room of Morgoth himself, right, in order to take the Silmaril from Morgoth's own crown, and that is not, um, that is no wilder, crazier, and more unlikely a quest than Frodo's quest. To take the Ring of Power, not just into Mordor, but into the center of Sauron's power, at the very cracks of doom, and, you know, by himself, and throw the ring in. Um, and yes, uh, the parallels with their wounding, um, uh, you know, the hand and the finger, that's very clear, isn't it? Um, so we, we will, there will be lots of ways in which the story is going to reinforce uh, the parallels between Baron's story and Frodo's story. Um, yeah, carried to safety by eagles, Kate. Exactly. Carried to safety by the same eagles by name in one of the manuscripts, which totally blew my mind. Um, but yes. Anyway, um, so... <laughs> so that seems relatively clear. Okay, so does that help us in understanding the rest of the list? Well, Hurin. Okay. All right, Hurin. Hurin also. What is Hurin most famous for? What is Hurin's greatest deed that he is most celebrated for in song? His sacrifice in the Fens of Serech, right? His shouting out Aure on Tulava 70 times, right? As he slew. Um, and Gilgalady, absolutely. Then being taken before the face of Morgoth and defying him there, right? So, rising up and standing up against impossible odds, right? And standing through the end, through past the end of his strength, and defying Morgoth to his face, which very few others ever did, ever managed to do, right? I mean, you got to remember that many, you know, of the mighty among the Noldor were cowed. Maeglin was cowed when he faced Morgoth. And that's a big deal. Maeglin was corrupt, but great. Um, with great strength of will. Um, but he was cowed when he was brought before Morgoth. Um, it doesn't excuse his treachery. But, nevertheless, like, it's a big deal. Um, yeah. So, um, right. Feanor did too. Yeah, I agreed. Agreed. Um, yes. Yes. Um, so, Hurin... His defiance of Morgoth was a big... And, and, and so we, we can see a thing that connects Hurin and Baron and, prospectively, Frodo, right? You, like these other mighty elf friends of old, are... You are standing forth to defy the enemy to his face, right? To go into the heart of his power in order to destroy him, like Baron to uh, stand beyond your strength 
in the gap to protect all of the rest of the free peoples, even to the sacrifice of yourself, like Hurin at the Fens of Serek, and yet still to defy the enemy to his face, like Hurin. Okay. Okay. Hador. Now, Hador is tricky because we don't know very much about Hador. Um, uh, although Turin is sort of the most puzzling, he's more puzzling than Hador mostly because we know more about him, right? And, and a lot of the stuff that we know about him is um, kind of uncomfortable. And, and, and again, would kind of make me be like, if I were Frodo in this moment, I'd be like, um, wow, uh, you'd, you think it's going to turn out that badly, do you? Um, but, um, uh, yeah. Okay. But Hador, Hador is hard because we have little data. Um, but what we know of Hador is that Hador was, um, he was called the peer of elven lords. Um, he was of all of the leaders of the human, you know, we have the three households of the Adain, right? The house of Beor um, and the house of Haleth and the house of Hador. Um, of those three, the house of Beor, they were friends with the elves. Beor was, was close in friendship with Finrod and, um, and served him faithfully. And the house of, Beor um, is mostly all destroyed in the uh, uh, in the Dagor Bragalach until they are hunted down at the end and Baron himself alone surviving. Um, we know all that about the House of Beor, but yet, although they were friends with the elves and although they did really good things for the elves, it was Hador. Hador alone among them basically joins. He signs up for the war, you know. Um, he joins Fingolfin and Fingon on the front lines. Again, Bear's family lives on the front lines. That's why they get overwhelmed. Um, I'm not trying to cast aspersions on them. Um, but um, but Hador uh, is the one who, like, steps up with the elves. Like, there's an extent to which the three houses of the Adain are kind of like a spectrum, right? You've got the Haladin who are off on their own. They're not unfriendly with the elves, but they're independent. And they live by themselves in the house, in the, the house, in the forest of Brethil, and they, they're far from the frontier. And they, you know, again, they're, they're, they're not unfriendly with the elves, but they're not, they're not adopting the elves' war either, right? Um, and then you've got the House of Beor, which is kind of in the middle, right? On the one hand, they're up there on the front lines, but they're also kind of minding their own business on the front lines. Um, and, uh, you know, when they... Um, they're still friends, but, um, uh, but they... Um, they're not... Unlike the House of Hador, the House of Hador, they enlist. They sign up. They join in... Um, they join in the leaguer of Morgoth. Um, and Hador was the, for all we know, which is not very much about Hador's story. Um, um, yeah, yes, Hador got there first, Kurtzimus, as you say. Um, they, um, um, he joins, they join the fight 
Michael Tobias, as you say, for the uh, uh, for the love of Fingolfin. Yes, yes, um, um, yes. He does. He does, um, and is named Peer of Elven Lords. That's kind of the title that he's given. Right. He is there side by side and shoulder to shoulder with the other elf lords. He's the of all of the leaders of the Adain. He and his line after him are the ones who most fully adopt the war against Morgoth um, and kind of take take a lead there. Um, Erev Numenor is wondering if maybe Hador is on the list as the as the inaugural elf friend. Well, Beor is kind of the very first of the elf friends. So Hador didn't come first. Um, but he's, um, so yeah, he's not the very first, but he was the first to do this, right? Beor's friendship with Finrod was personal. Um, and even like the service that he rendered to Finrod was also personal. And in Nargothrond, you know, hundreds of miles away from Morgoth. And it had nothing to do in that sense, really with Morgoth, um, uh, really with Morgoth himself. But Hador's did. Hador was signing up to fight against Morgoth on the front lines. Turin. So, I was confounded. Now, I don't want to minimize what Turin... It's easy to diss on poor Turin. And he is much more of a tragic figure than an anti-hero or anything like that. Um, he is certainly not an anti-hero. He is a tragic figure. Um, it's hard because I'm always tempted to say it's not Turin's fault that things always keep going wrong around him, except it kind of is. <laughs> it kind of is. I guess it kind of is his, his own choice every single time that screws things up. Um, the hard thing is that most of the time he's really trying to do the right thing. It's like his heart's in the right place, but his head leads him wrong almost every single time. Um, and he's a tragic figure. He accomplishes something. He kills Glaurung, which is a great deed. Um, but still, does that alone make this list? Right? Maybe. Maybe, but the parallel doesn't seem really good, right? But Emily, this is when I get back to the point that you made earlier on. And when I, for the first time... Um, no, it wasn't the first time, actually. It was like the second or third time. When I, when we, It wasn't really until we got here in the Mythgard Academy series on the history of Middle-earth when we got to discussing... It's in Shaping, isn't it? Shaping of Middle-earth? I think it's in Shaping of Middle-earth in the Quentin Olderinwa, I think. The 1930 Silmarillion version. I think that's where the Turin stuff is. And by the Turin stuff, I don't mean his story. I don't mean the Silmarillion story. I mean the story of Turin's end, right? Because what is, what is the way in which Turin is a good and a fair parallel to Frodo? is the very end of his story, not his suicide, Nathan. <laughs> right, again, that's another reason why, like, again, if I'm Frodo, I'm like, oh, oh, see, you expect things to end as well as that, do you, right? Um, no, it's the, um, it's the very end, 
right? The very end of, uh, of Turin's story as it was once told. Um, but not too long before the Lord of the Rings, uh, was written. And that is, um, exactly. Um, killing Morgoth in the Dagor Dagoroth. The Dagor Dagoroth, the Battle of Battles, um, the apocalyptic end of days of Middle-earth, the end of Arda, before the creation of the new heavens and earth, um, Tolkien only told this story once. Um, he never got back to it again. Which means, by the way, it's really hard to know for sure how his ideas on that might or might not have changed. Just because he dropped it and didn't tell that story again does not mean that he this is not still how it went in his head um, until the day Tolkien died. We don't know for sure. Um, but um, in that version of the story, um, in the final battle, Turin Turambar returns... And with his black sword, kills Morgoth once and for all. It is Turin and his black sword that is given the honor, the privilege, the responsibility of ultimately destroying Morgoth and ending his entire career. Um, Ending evil forever in Arda to usher in the new you know, the time of the new creation. Um, and I think that's why Turin is on Elrond's list. Because, of course, that is directly parallel to what Frodo is signing up to do. Remember, all of this comes from, I will say that your choice is right. I will say that your choice is right. And though all the mighty elf friends. So the and though clause is all in order to illustrate why your choice is right. Why is it that Frodo will rightly be placed in this list of folks? Hador and Hurin and Turin and Beren. I don't think it's Turin's great strength, his might, his might as a warrior, greatest, um, uh, you know, greatest of all. Um, uh, you know, Turin was you know, uh, the greatest in many categories uh, in human history, um, is not the slaying of Glaurung, I believe. Um, how long does forever typically last, Tomas? This is the real forever. This is the end of Arda. Arda is done and Morgoth is destroyed. Um, yeah. Um, but, um, but in the end... Turin is the one who is going to deal Morgoth his death blow. And that's what Frodo is signing up for. His quest is like Baron's, very similar to Baron's, except it's not exactly the same. I mean, for one thing, Baron was going to make a withdrawal and Frodo was going to make a deposit, right? Um, but I mean, aside from my flippant fl- phrasing there, it's still true. What the contrast that Frodo said um, with his and Bilbo's quests holds true of Baron as well. Baron went to find a treasure. Frodo goes to lose one. Right? Um, the whole purpose of their quests, um, 
Barons and Frodo's, I mean, are not the same at all. The parallel of like the path of their quests, of what exactly they end up doing, is very similar, right? Um, but in the end, what they're attempting to accomplish is quite different. Hurin defies Morgoth, right? Um, defies Morgoth beyond hope, and therefore also is a good parallel for Frodo in a different way, right? Um, Frodo will be like Baron in that he will dare to enter the heart of the enemy's domain and into the center of his power, though, you know, himself weak. Baron could not have arm-wrestled Morgoth, right? That wasn't going to work. Um, but um, but anyway, he dared to do the thing, right? At this, you know... Uh, at the 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 risk and, and and willing to sacrifice his own life, Frodo's going to do that too. Hurin defied Morgoth to his face beyond hope, and stood in self-sacrifice, uh, defending you know defending the lives of others until he himself was taken. Frodo will do that too, right? Hador, um, he, like Hador, Frodo is taking up the heavy burden. Right is signing. He he is enlisting, enlisting for the war against Sauron when he could remain in the quiet fields of the Shire, right? But he is leaving the quiet fields and moving to the front lines uh, to join the war against the enemy, um, and he's like Turin, and in some ways most like Turin, not in Turin's checkered career during his mortal life which ends with his incest and then suicide, but more like Turin in his final act, after Turin's deification, essentially, um, when he deals the evil one his death blow and rids the land of evil. Um, that's, um, That's a big deal. And that is like what Frodo is doing, right? So in the end, I think that what these guys all have in common is their relationship with the big bad, right? Their relationship with Morgoth and that what Frodo is doing in a different age with a different bad guy, right, um, is parallel to these. That if, all, if they were assembled together, Frodo's seat should be among them. Um, yeah, yeah, Um Exactly. Bobby says it's interesting how preemptive Elrond's statement is. Frodo would be counted among them now, uh, uh, not uh, after... Yes, yeah, sir. Not after... Sorry, I lost you there. Um, whatever future challenge, uh, challenges lie ahead. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you... Your seat should be among them. Yes, exactly. Um, you're right. It's not like, um, Frodo, if you pull this off, you will be totally famous. Right. That's not what he's saying. His willingness. He's talking. Elrond is talking about the choice. Right. Um, if you take this burden on yourself freely, then I say, though all of these elf friends were assembled together, your seat should be among them. Um, what does that mean? So that's where I'm, you know, Flamifer, this is why I'm talking about all this, because I'm trying to understand what that statement means. Your seat should be among them. What is he saying about Frodo when he says that? 
that's that's what I'm trying to work out. Um, and was all of this lore that we've been discussing available to first-time Lord of the Rings readers? No, it certainly was not. It is only available to us now uh, through the industry and generosity of Christopher Tolkien uh, in the history of Middle-earth. Um, but I do think that there is good reason to think that this is what Tolkien was thinking when he wrote this, um, based on where the stories were at that point. Um, at that point, uh, when he wrote The Lord of the Rings. Um, exactly, Matt. The act of defiance is what earns him the seat, not the relative success of the quest. Um, yes, the act, that act is an extraordinary act akin to Bilbo giving up the One Ring. Agreed. Frodo stepping forward and volunteering for this quest. That is his victory. The accomplishment of the quest is not his victory, nor is his praise premised upon it. Why? Because it's not in his power. Frodo can't pull this off, right? There's no scenario in which Frodo just pulls this off, right? By his own power, resourcefulness, right? Remember, Elrond's entire premise was that neither strength nor wisdom is going to do the job. They don't need somebody who's got what it takes to pull off this heist, or anti-heist, un-heist, I suppose, right? Um, again, with deposit, not withdrawal. Um, but um, that's not, that's not, um, it's never been on the table. The success of this quest, I think Elrond is perfectly clear on the fact that the success in this quest does not lie with the ring bearer. That's why he said, let's not go for strength and wisdom here, people. Right? I mean, at the end of the day, he, Elrond says, and Bilbo echoes, the only thing they have to decide is one thing. Who should take up the ring? That they need to send the ring to the fire? Yes. That's clear. That's their only option. But they can't hope to do it. They can't plan. I mean, it's it seems like despair or folly. Remember, I mean, no sensible plan can include decent odds of winning this thing. That's not what they're going for. That's never been Elrond's plan, and he's been setting that up now for a while. All they have to decide is who's going to take the ring, who's best to take the ring. Who is right to take the ring? And then we'll see what happens. It's out of their hands at that point. Um, and nothing that they can do, um, uh, nothing that they can do is going to guarantee success, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, It is possible, Brandon, that you could put Turin on the list based on his defiance of Morgoth's curse. He does defy Morgoth's curse. It doesn't, that doesn't feel right to me, though. And the primary reason it doesn't feel right to I mean, he is defying the power of Morgoth. That's true. In his life. I mean, like, he's trying to do that. Um, but I think the reason I don't find that satisfying um, is that... Think, Brandon, of when he 
names himself Turambar, master of fate, right? In other words, when he names himself Turambar, that's when he's basically saying, I did it, right? I win, Morgoth. I have defeated the curse. And that's when he's, like, in his retreat with a woodman marrying his sister. I, the marrying his sister is the bitter irony thing, right? Like, that's when things are actually going really badly and he doesn't know. Um, but, um, uh, but, yeah, yeah. Um, he... What defiance of Morgoth meant to Turin as far as the destiny thing was concerned was like the freedom to live his own life, you know? He was hiding, in a sense, from Morgoth. It was... Remember, he was in retirement. He'd put aside his black sword. He was not going to take up the... You know, he was he was going to live his life in obscurity. Turin's not capable. He was congenitally incapable of obscurity, right? But um, nevertheless, that was his plan, right? And that was when he named himself Turinbar. So this is... I think that's why, Brandon, it doesn't feel like quite, you know, Hall of Fame worthy. The mere... His mere attempt... Because, I mean, to some extent, it was... I'm not saying that his, it necessarily was purely selfish on his part, but he could purely selfishly have attempted to, like, defy Morgoth's curse in order to just live his own life. Um, and that doesn't feel like the same thing as the others. But, um, <laughs> yeah, claiming the One Ring as your own with the purpose of attempting to destroy it is indeed defying Sauron. It is. Now, claiming it as your own, and Athalas, that would get onto this sketchy ground there. Um, uh, right, I mean, Boromir's desire to use the ring against Sauron is also a defiance of Sauron, no question. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, right, so Kokos want, want me to circle back around to Tuor. Has Tuor not defied the Dark Lord? Um, not as directly. Not as neatly. I mean, look, I'm not trying to take anything away from Tour. He's one of my very favorite elf friends of history. Um, And I bet he's one of Elrond's favorite elf friends of history. But the parallel isn't as clear. Um, He led the people to say, he delivers the message of Olmo. He leads the people to say, you know, he is destiny. Right. I mean, he is uh, he is the one foretold. He is there are lots of things that he's associated with, but that's not Frodo's role. Right. He's not he's not like the his quest isn't a I am the one that the gods have foretold. And like this mighty armor was been set aside for me. That's not you know, I am going to speak with the voice of uh, the Lord of Waters. It's not that's not Frodo's career. Um, That's not the trajectory, really. Um, uh, and again, he doesn't even he doesn't he doesn't fight Morgoth ultimately, I mean he like fights when Gondolin is under attack right, and he manages to help preserve the people, you know, the the remnant of Gondolin, but um, uh, but again, it wasn't um, he didn't strike against the darkness you know what I mean, like again, it's no disrespect, it wasn't his job right, he had another job um uh, but uh, that wasn't his job, and so therefore, I think is not um, is not exactly parallel. 
uh, in this in this way. And Tarlonio, I agree. Frodo is a really atypical fantasy protagonist. Uh, he is. He is. Um, uh, and, and, and that is, uh, that is pretty cool. Um, yeah, you're right, praise. Frodo's armor, though awesome, is a hand-me-down, right? Which I suppose technically Tuor's armor was a hand-me-down as well, but it's not quite the same thing. Um, it's not quite the same thing. Um, yeah. Now, for Thalys, I mean, I agree Frodo is set apart. Um, he, there is certainly a way in which Frodo is chosen for this. Um, um, and Elrond acknowledged that. I think that this task is appointed for you, Frodo. I think that your choice is right. This is the way it should be. You are the one who should be here. And has he been prepared for that? You know, through his adoption by Bilbo and... Yes. Yes, he has. He has been prepared for that. Um, it's just... His role isn't quite the same as Tuor, right? So, you know... For the sake of establishing the parallel, Elrond doesn't go there. Um, yeah, yeah. Gandalf says so too. Exactly, exactly. Yes. Um, and I agree, Hythalos, Tuor does not share in the same cost of his service. Um, yeah, Tuor does not sacrifice himself in the end. Um, Tuor, Tuor has the temerity to have a happy ending. I mean, it's almost like you'd think he would have gotten voted out of the Silmarillion for that. <laughs> right? I mean, think about it. Tour has a happy ending. Uh, right? I mean, it's not that no tragedy ever befalls him, but Tour has a happy ending. Um, so, there you go. Um, uh, and so did Baron. Yeah. Yeah. Kinda. Kinda. Um, yeah, kind of. Um, and yes, it's true. Baron gets a sort of happy ending. Sort of, sort of happy. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah, it's, um, Fort Thoughtless, I think that's better. Fort Thoughtless would qualify and say Baron gets a happy coda. Uh, he's got to die for it first. Um, Yes. Yes, agreed. Agreed. Um, Kurtzmas wants to know if uh, Bilbo would have known of these guys before he lived in Rivendell. Definitely. I mean, would he have uh, had the ability to? Yes. Remember, before he lived in Rivendell, he knew, translated, and taught to Sam the Gilgalad rhyme. Right? So Bilbo has been in the business of learning elf lore and translating elf lore for the sake of teaching it to hobbit children for many years before he went away. Um, this was, who was I talking to? Tony, Tony Mead and I um, were talking at Magnolia Moot 1, I believe, um, when we came up with this theory, which I really, really liked, which was imagining the career of Bilbo, I think I've talked about this before, but I'll say it again, between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, right? During that that 60-year period, what was Bilbo up to, right? And we were imagining that Bilbo's career would seem to be sort of half and half, that the first part of his career, he was doing a lot of traveling 
and learning and acquiring lore, visiting El, you know, visiting Rivendell, um, going out again to, uh, uh, to just like just hanging out with elves in different places, right? And then he seems to have settled down a little bit more um, in his later days when he adopted Frodo, especially and as the younger generation begins to grow up. Remember, he's, he's, nobody is connected to in his generation, so he's kind of a free agent for a while. And then um, he had, then his his nephews start growing up, and he adopts Frodo. Um, and this is when he starts, be, you know, uh, learning Sam his letters uh, and that. So we um, we. We kind of were speculating, basically, that his his career, you know, was kind of divided between his like traveling and learning phase when he was a free agent to his active teaching phase when he begins to say uh, when he begins to set himself to be an actual transmitter of lore to hobbits, as we see with Sam. Right. Sam is uh you know, like one of his guinea pigs. Well, Frodo is his even first guinea pig. But in Sam, we can see it's not just a family thing, right? It's not just private, um, you know, to the one that I adopted as my heir, um, but even to the kids in the neighborhood, right? Um, and uh, <clears throat> and I, I still like that idea. Bilbo's translations from the Elvish, I think, were not only composed in the last 17 years, Um he seemed to have uh, had a a plan for that, essentially. Um, but um, okay. Um, all right. Um, so Bilbo becomes the schoolmaster of Hobbiton. Well, certainly, as far as elf lore is concerned, I mean, he's one of the only. He's pretty much the only game in town uh, when it comes to folks who are interested in learning any elf lore. Now. It's interesting that, of course, we can see that um, even Ted Sandyman has elf lore, doesn't he? Remember that Ted Sandyman, though he speaks with scorn, responds to uh, to Sam's comment about the elves sailing, sailing, sailing away, right? His lapsing into verse there. Um, Ted Sandyman says, that ain't nothing new if you believe the old tales, right? So Ted Sandyman has heard stories about elves sailing away from Middle-earth and leaving us, right? It's not, a, he, it's not an unfamiliar concept to him. He doesn't put much stock in it, but he's heard the stories, right? Um, and um, I, you know, I wonder. I wonder what, um, how much influence. Clearly some of these stories still exist. Um, I, I, Pre-Bilbo, right? Bilbo himself, knew some of these stories about dragons. You know, his dad saying about dragons and such, right? Um, even the name of the Green Dragon Inn, right? Why Why is there one dragon in Bywater that's green, right? Why should there even be a single dragon in Bywater is a, is a, a, a perfectly sensible question, right? Bilbo had heard about Gondolin, exactly trifles. So we know that um, these stories were still part of Hobbit culture. And so when Bilbo begins his teaching career, right? Um, he is not introducing something new. He is fanning a flame that is already there, right? Um, and which clearly finds uh, um, finds uh, a some receptive kindling uh, in the heart of Sam Gamgee, obviously. Um, 
But uh, but exactly, Lady Shmebulak, I certainly think that Bilbo probably did uh, lead an elf lore day camp for Hobbit tots. Why not? Ted Sandyman might even have come, right? Um, I, what could be likelier? He's another kid from the neighborhood, right? I mean, Sam and Ted Sandyman both would have been kids together. Um, wouldn't he, that is Ted, have had plenty of opportunity to hear old Mr. Bilbo's stories? He's forsworn them now, right? He scorns them now. He's distancing, distancing himself from them now. But wouldn't he have heard them? I bet he would have, right? At gatherings, at birthday parties in any case, right? We know that the great party uh, in chapter one of the Fellowship of the Ring is the greatest and most spectacular party that Bilbo has thrown, but it's not the only one. Um, so, yes, yes. Um, uh I agree that Ted seems more like a jock than a book nerd, but again, um, has he heard them? Not did he enjoy them? Not, you know, did he study them? He's not, there's no evidence that Bilbo learned Ted his letters. Um, I doubt Ted was interested. Um, and yet, um, I'd be surprised if Ted had not heard them. Mr. Bilbo has been telling these stories and reciting poetry in, at random points, right? Uh, enough to make... The fact that everybody rolls his eyes because they think he's going to start reciting poetry um, at, this, at his speech, right? At his party tells me that's normal. He does this a lot, right? Breaking out into poetry. And what is he going to break out? Bilbo. What's Bilbo going to break out into poetry about? Right? His own poetry that he wrote you know, the poetry he made up, just like that Gilgalad poem, I bet you a lot of it is um, uh, elf lore poetry that Bilbo was wont to break out in at parties, right, when he was making a speech. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, Kurtzimus. I suspect that many of them were translations. Um, so, yes, and when that's been happening, when the old dude up the hill has been reciting poetry at parties, you know, this elf poetry at parties for 60 years, you know, these stories get around. There are going to be some who reject it like Ted. There will be others who cling to it like Sam, but um, there will be a whole lot in the middle, right? Who will roll their eyes and stuff, but they've heard it. They've heard it. Um... And stories of trolls absolutely belongs, Mom. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, there's not going to be any like Sam. Well, you know, Torumbar, it is uh, um, hard to imagine any of them were quite as cool as Sam, obviously. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, let's peek ahead. Just, just peeking ahead. But you won't send him off alone, surely, master, cried Sam, unable to contain himself any longer and jumping up from the corner where he had been quietly sitting on the floor. Let's, um, we'll come back to Sam at the beginning of next time, but let's end today by looking at Sam's question in the context of everything that we've seen. First of all, send him off is a really interesting thing for Sam to say, given how much 
Elrond has just been saying, um, you know, I'm not gonna, uh, I don't lay this burden on you, right? And then Sam is kind of turning right around, right? You won't send him off alone. Um, how do we read that? Is he not paying attention? I don't think so. I think he is paying attention. I think that this is um, um, this is a serious paying attention example here, right? He understands what's going on. Um, and notice that he is making one step ahead of Elrond. Elrond has said, there's still time to change your mind, Frodo, right? If you take this, Sam has no doubts, I think. Sam knows that Frodo is going to follow through. Sam has, Frodo has volunteered and Frodo is going to do it. So there is no question, there may be a question in Elrond's mind. Maybe he'll reconsider. Maybe, you know, I need to make sure to give him a chance to fully understand the significance of what he's doing before we lock this in, right? Sam doesn't need it, right? Um, Sam knows Frodo's locked in. So the only question, there's only one question. If Bilbo was saying before, there's only one thing this council has to decide, right? Um, Sam realizes now there's only one thing that there is to decide, right? And that thing is, are you going to send him off alone? And remember what Elrond said about strength and wisdom, right? This quest may be attempted by the weak as well as the strong, um, if Frodo's going, right, if Frodo's going on this quest because his are the small hands that are going to move the wheels of the world, if that's what's happening here, there is a non-zero chance that Elrond, despite Frodo's appeal, I do not know the way, right, there's a non-zero chance in Sam's mind. I mean, if Elrond meant what he said, maybe he's going to send him off alone. Maybe, right? Um... So Sam has a comment on that. But you won't send him off alone, surely, Master. That won't happen. Surely. Right? Um, Elrond is going to send Frodo off. Right? And I don't think, uh, Flamifer, I don't think that, um, uh, I don't think that he is, you know, claiming that Elrond is actually, in fact, laying this on Frodo. Right? I don't. I don't. I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, you won't send him off alone. Is simply, he's volunteered. You are going to. You're not so against strength and wisdom, right? I mean, he had spoken, Elrond had spoken, of, like, minimizing the party sent, right? Minimizing the strength and wisdom that go with the ring. Um, and uh, so, yeah, uh, D. Schwab, absolutely, um, Sam is volunteering, right? Um, you won't send him off alone, surely, Master, right? Um and of course, Elrond responds immediately as if Sam had 
volunteered. Because he has. This is definitely Sam volunteering, right? I, do, I think it is perfectly fair to paraphrase Sam's question here as, you're going to let me come too, right? I, I'm, I'm, I'm understanding you, Elrond. You're not going to object, are you? If I come too, right? You're not going to prevent anybody else coming along to help Frodo, right? Right? Am I right in that, Mr. Elrond? Master? Um, and exactly, Rowan. Sam's like, my hands are pretty small too, right? And, and again, Elrond gets that, sees that immediately. Um, exactly, Turnbar says, Sam in this moment proudly presents his hands for examination of size. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, yes. Um, and I agree, Cook of Wooten Minor, that he is motivated by loyalty and friendship. Absolutely. Um, why is he volunteering? Um, and Captain Mo, I do, yes, I do think that Sam is really understanding how hard the quest will be. I do. He's been paying attention. Uh, you know, he's been listening to the council. He's heard the whole thing. Um, and he understands. Um but what he can't abide uh, is the idea of Frodo being sent on this quest alone. You won't send him off alone, surely. You won't do that. Um, now, Nathan, I think I agree with you that Sam is volunteering mostly to serve Frodo, less so to save the world. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Yes. Um, I do believe that that is what he is doing here. That that's what that's what that's what he's signing up for. Um, that's not to say that he doesn't care about saving the world, but that's not what he's here for. That's not his job. That's not his job. Um, and he's perfectly right about this. And I think this is the, one of the things that Sam will. Sam never loses track of this, right? Sam never lets it go to his head, right? Um, Sam never, well, we'll get there. Um, but Sam is not, I think in this moment, signing up to save the world. Um, Sam is volunteering to serve Frodo and to help Frodo, knowing what Frodo is volunteering for. Um, and I don't mean saving the world. I mean volunteering for suffering, self-sacrifice, um, uh, you know, near certainty of death, uh, near impossibility of success. Um, he understands that. Um, so yes, yes. Um, or maybe he's signing up to save Frodo. Maybe, maybe. Um, yeah. Now, Gordon was asking how far ahead did Tolkien plan the Sam arc? Um, uh, Sam's role was pretty clear, certainly from this point. Um, Sam's role was always going to be one of humility and self-sacrifice. There's no change there. The emergence of Sam's character... Um, 
didn't happen right away. Um, those of you who went through the Return of the Shadow with me will remember the ever-changing sort of... I don't know. It's like the... It's like the primordial character ooze of Frodo's companions, right? With all these different names, which all get shifted around. And it's really eerie when you read it because there are all these lines that are direct quotations from like, you know, this one character in this one draft will say like one line that Pippin will eventually get and one line that Sam will eventually get. And like, eventually it all kind of settles out. Um, but, um, uh, so even Sam, Sam was not there in that sense from the very beginning. But once Sam's character emerged uh, as Sam Gamgee, um, and certainly from this point, I think from every, every time from this point, um, once Tolkien got to the Council of Elrond, Sam's role was clear. Um, and his trajectory, as I think I mentioned last time, um, in the very first draft of The Cracks of Doom, Sam dies. Sam uh, tackles Gollum into the cracks of doom, basically, sacrificing his own life uh, to destroy the ring. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of the flavor of his um, character from the very beginning. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, belongs Mond, I agree. Rosie would not have that ending. No, no, he would not. Um, yeah. And, you know, Rachel, I think I agree with that statement that, um, um, Sam understands the ring as well as anyone in that room. Yeah. I mean, well, at least better than most. I think that Frodo, Bilbo, and Gandalf might understand it a little bit better. Possibly Elrond as another ring bearer, but, um, but Sam certainly gets it more than, more than most more than most. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's stop there because we're at the end of our time. Um, next week, before Mythmoot, we shall finish this, our last slide. Look at this. We are what, at most two and a half paragraphs away from the end of the Council of Elrond at long last. Um, and it, we're finally, after more than a year and a half, uh, it's been, what has it been, something like 19 months now, um, we will finally let Bilbo have lunch. Um, so, um, so there we are. Uh, <laughs> you guys keep teasing me about this, I'm telling you. We're finishing next time. And then a new chapter unfolds. Uh, I don't even know how to talk about any chapter but the Council of Elrond anymore. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, it'll, um, um, it'll be... <laughs> Bricktails, you're right. Now that's a reenactment we can probably do at Mythmoot. Um, Bilbo finally getting his lunch. Um, one thing I was thinking about, actually, maybe we will try to do a reenactment at, Myth, at Mythmoot. The reenactment I'd kind of like to do because we never got a chance. Um, we were going to do it, and then it got put off by the... That is, uh, remember the seating arrangements at the feast? Uh, we never got to do that reenactment. Yeah, exactly. So maybe we will... Um, uh, maybe we'll do that. I'm, I'm doing, a, I'm doing a, a lunchtime talk, like during lunch, like in the dining hall. So that might be a, a perfect... Except... Hmm. 
their tables are round. We'll see. I'll, I'll see what I can do. I'll see what I can do. Um, but, um, yeah, excellent. Okay, so we will, we will, we will see. <laughs> we will see. Exactly. Um, all right, Fred Rock Paper says, I've never attended a live session that wasn't the Council of Elrond. Exactly. There have been, <laughs> there have been children born and now walking around who have <laughs> never seen uh, a uh, Exploring the Lord of the Rings session that was not, uh, that was not the Council of Elrond. Um, but, uh, we'll, uh, we'll see what we can do. All right. Awesome. So we're going to turn to our field trip now and, uh, we're exploring Fromsburg up near Gundabad. I'm, I'm excited to see evidence of, uh, from the dragon slayer. Uh, so, um, let us go to our Lotro field trip. Good evening, Valori. Good evening. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. I'm as yeah, with usual. The, with the, the food at the National Convention Center, there'll be ample ability to yeah. create. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a good, uh, yeah, it's a good feasting place for uh, uh, going through that. Okay. Although, you know, the hobbits would be the ones out in the hallway stocking up on cookies and coffee. Right. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Okay. All right. Good. All right. So let's head back to. Let's see. Where did we? Where was that? What was the name of that place again? Uh, it was Lithseld. Lithseld. Yes. That is that like place. Welsh or something? Is it supposed to be like Lithseld? Lithseld. I don't know. Maybe the H is silent. Maybe it's Lithseld. Lithseld. Maybe. Maybe. anyone knows what language that's from and how it's supposed to be pronounced, please, uh, please pick up on that one. It, it is so weird that we're comparing stuff to the rough drafts, though. I always feel it's, it's, it's a little indecent, like looking at someone in their underwear before they're quite dressed. Yeah, well, and I, I gotta think that that's... Tolkien would have thought so, for sure. Um, <laughs> but it's, so. you know, it's hard because, like, you can't stop... Like, one can't really resist trying to answer the question what was in Tolkien's mind, right? What was Tolkien thinking? You know, what did Tolkien yeah, yeah. himself mean by this? And the drafts do give us they, they more often give negative information. Like, we can be sure he was not thinking this because it's impossible that he was thinking this. Like, like you know, like for instance, we can say, you know, we know that um, uh, you know, when Elrond was talking about the Three Rings, like, you know, when, when Tolkien originally conceived that speech about the Three Rings, he wasn't referring to Galadriel because he hadn't thought of Galadriel yet, right? So knowing that... Yeah, the, he said the, the hobbits to the pony. He didn't know who... He thought they were going to meet up with a hobbit named Trotter, that sort of thing. Exactly, right. So there's there are definitely some things that we can learn there. But of course, like, at the end of the day, the entire question of, you know... What was Tolkien thinking? You know, what did this mean to Tolkien? It's it's almost impossible not to ask that question. But at the end of the day, that's not really the like appropriate question, really. Like, it's not the question that matters at the end of the day. Um, it's uh, it's an important question. It's an ins inescapable question. But at the end of the day, like what we find in the text, you know, what we find and what we see in the text is is actually, um, you know, more important. Tolkien is the, 
as Tolkien would have been the first to say in particular, he was just the discoverer. He didn't he he didn't know what the story meant uh, himself. Yeah, and, I, I can relate to that for sure. Yeah. And you know, and, and when I say it's about underwear, you I do keep in mind that I have many friends in theater who are costume buffs and there's quite a lot of obsession about how but underwear is like honestly. <laughs> Right. Right. You're saying sometimes it's appropriate to look at underwear on stage, so yeah. Well, sometimes it can't be helped and it does Sometimes give it can't be helped. Right. Some ideas. Right. And understanding. Exactly. And this is why I always loved how Tolkien talked about um talked about um the like how he answered questions when people asked him about like what this meant and he never gave almost never gave just an authority an author answer you know he almost never said like let me tell you what i was thinking here in this but here's what this passage really means right he never talked like that he always did a close reading of the passage, compared it to other, drew in information from other. Like, he always answered like a reader, not like an author, um, because he never felt, I think, that he was like in control of the meaning. Like that was something that was his job. Exactly. Um, and I think that's pretty cool. All right. So this is where we ended last time looking at Fromsburg from a distance. This is the convenient spot. Um but of course we can't cross this way. So, but I just wanted to remember that this bridge was here and look at where this bridge connects this big, huge, sturdy, now fallen, but presumably difficult to throw down yeah, at the time pretty... Fromsburg was a fortress thing. So, but we got to go around a little bit here hmm. actually to get across, right? The uh, entrance to the... Let's assume what? the answer is yes. Where is it? Down, huh? Um, I think it'd be further down. Yeah, this can't be the. I mean, we can get there this way, but this is obviously not the way one is meant to oh, do. We have to go around this outcrop. Oh, right, here. because of the orc camp across. The yeah, we got. I, it's the only the orc, orc bridge that gives us access, right? Could be. Huh, it's not a very well used orc path down to this bridge. Mm. In fact, there's not really any path. It's just forest. Okay. So, do we want to know what's in those little bags that are hanging? Oh, those are urns. Oh yeah, hanging from the ropes. Like Breland. I have no so idea. Breland and North Down, they had bridges with those things on them. We've never really thought much about them. Yeah, I. I'm not but sure. I, I want to think too much about them. But it's a strange thing. Okay. How they hang their man flesh, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so here we are in Fromsburg, but up there is where the bridge came out. So it's like this is not like the approach that one would have, but. Um, okay, so this was a tower, rounded wall. Um. Yeah, we got that big sort of Roman arch there again. Yeah. Right, the stonework looks very similar to what we saw there across the way and over near Limlock as well. Um, we've still not really seen any markings or decorations or, you know, any kind of iconography. Yeah, it's pretty unadorned. Yeah. 
But I mean, this almost moss in there. Yeah, this almost has to be. Almost has to be. Constructed by the Aotheod, right? By the ancestors of the Rohirrim. Yeah, yeah, I think so. You know, Fram and company. Now, mm -hmm. so what do we think? I'm trying to. We'll, we'll try to see what evidence we get, if any. But I'm looking at this arch, and I'm seeing. The only real nothing. evidence we had was that sort of uh, calendar slash sundial they had. Mm-hmm. This whole thing seems to have been well look at this huge rock that was obviously here for quite some time they built the fortress around this rock hmm. I mean it would have been hard to move don't get me wrong we've got walls and courtyards halls it looks like some of these rocks have smashed through the walls hmm like there's been some landslides. Oh, right. Could this rock have fallen down from up there? Uh, it definitely looks like it. Yeah, that's an interesting theory. Could well have been, perhaps. Um, from the way the ruins are spread around, this looks more like a city than a castle, per se. Right. I mean, like different buildings, different with maybe might have been streets in among them. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm mean, still not seeing any. Whoa. Anything. Yeah, lots of bats. Moose. And those are mountain giant bats, aren't they? Is that what they're called? Uh, I think so, yeah. They're Gundabad bats. Gundabad bats. Bad bats. Good bad bats. Right, Gundabad presumably bad of the bad. same kind that came with the goblins from Gundabad they for the Battle of Five for Armies. They one reason for their woolly fur, which is good for sweaters. The bats. Yeah, the bats. Sorry, I was making fun of that line in The Hobbit. Is that <laughs> the movie, The Hobbit? Right. Where they just decided to sort of move Gundabad around. Well, yes, right. But there's that line, they were only bred for one reason, and then you could just come up with anything and it'd be funny. Uh, right. For their stakes. <laughs> right, lots of potential answers to that question. Some of them not so wholesome. Depends on how many bears you have while watching. Right. So yeah, see, like this looks like a hall. Um, oh yeah. I don't know. I mean, it is possible. Now, where are we on the peninsula? Because the over here, just like this the, is the edge of buildings, they like their circular sort of, you know, atrium mm -hmm. things. Right, this is the cliff right here, right? Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, it is. Down to the river. Yeah. Okay, so this was backing this hall, whatever it was, was backing onto the edge of the cliff over here. Probably a lookout tower. Do we... Th 
What was our guess of the age of the ruins near Limlock? Um, weren't we saying early Third Age? Like from the time of the Kingdom of Rovanian? Yes, I believe so. I think so. Like just. Like they were yeah, I think we were thinking this. They probably were recent because they do look like human built ruins trying to go down I remember from the bridge seeing what looked like a more prominent castle down here on the southern tip yeah oh yeah no here it is yeah but the the fact that it aged badly might be more down to Numenorean techniques that were lost I guess right Okay, I'm looking for fancy stonework. I wish I could see more. It's really weathered. There's some knot work right here on these squares. Yeah. But the rest is kind of the light on with all F10. Crazy, crazy concrete. Yeah, it's more decorative. Yeah. It's gonna be dawn soon, but not soon enough. We still got nothing on any of the arches. Oh. No. Can't just walk in, huh? Oh. Oops, I did yep. just walk in. Well, look at that. Oh, look, there's a... Oh, wow. What is that, a dragon? Fierce whelpling. Oh, that can't be good. No. There's probably larger siblings than that around. Yeah. A, does a dragon live here in Fromsburg? A dragon has taken up residence here? That's kind of wonderful. Maybe a, maybe a drake? In its way. Like a big drake. Sorry, I'm looking at this sconce on the wall. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. I don't see anything too characteristic. The kind of diamond patterns look a little dwarfish, if anything, but... Mm-hmm. It's not super distinctive. It's, it's just kind of overgrown and nasty-looking. Once again, if these ruins are younger, there must be something about the Arnorian and that the Arnorian stuff with their techniques just lasted longer for some reason. Yes. Where you yes. The tower up to your left. A horse. Mm-hmm. There oh, we go. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Our what first depiction of anything. Piece. Okay. And that looks like a tower. Another horse head up there. Yeah, we got horse heads on either side of that tower. Probably on all four. Oh. Okay. Yeah, I was looking down there and trying to figure out if there was a design on the floor. I don't think so. We can see you know, the straight lines and then the yes. cobblestones in the middle of it. But yeah, yeah I don't think it's a design. That's a mess. That's a mess. Yeah. Well, it is now and it's overgrown with ivy. Okay, so the horse definitely does show that we were right. This is, you know, definitely Aotheod ruins. So does this then, is this Fromsburg... So Fromsburg, was Fromsburg 
made by from after he slew Scatha the Worm? And if so... Scava's descendants? Right, which you would think would have been... Oh yeah, see, look, there's another horse in here. Oh, lots of horses. And bats. Many, many bats. bats. Yeah. Okay, see, we can come to that. Look how much detail there is there, though. With the... the, Because this is an armored horse. It's not just a horse head. I thought the ears from a distance looked a little funky. Um... But yeah, look at the look at the 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 oh. plate armor on the ear of the horse and then on the neck yes. of the horse. Viral. Yeah. Oh, thanks for the light, whoever brought the light yeah. there. Um Oh, you've got a torch. Well done. Yeah. Um huh. It's quite a realistic representation too. Well, uh, Oh, wow. Um, the knotwork next to it, it almost looks like there's images of men stuck in there. Like men and snakes. Oh, right. In there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which looks very, like, Icelandic, doesn't it? Yeah, Icelandic or Celtic. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. The horse is more realistically depicted than the humans are. Right. Because you're right, it's very... De- I mean, you look at, like, the like the hollow in the nose of the horse and, and the details in the neck. Mm-hmm. You can see you like the, the are. yeah you can t- you can see the musculature of the horse. Uh-huh. Well, it makes me wonder these banana shaped man over here with his wet, with his uh, interlocked legs. Right, right. Um, the curly cues there, you know, probably like were there on the armor of this horse, right? Like mm-hmm. they sort of yeah. uh, they put more curly cues up above it too. Yes. Yeah, I was just looking at that. Interesting. So this is not just some kind of like, oh, we like horses, but like we are a military horse-based society with armored horses, right? Yeah. No, this is, horses are definitely our thing. Yes. Yes. It was a way of life before they were the horse lords. Yeah, and and again with, with the with the military technology too. I mean, you know, plate armor for the horse is. Um, um, I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah. Okay, we're getting that again in several places. Both that and the kind of freeze not work behind it. seeing that all over down here. But you know what I'm not seeing? Uh, what? Okay, all right. Perhaps too open-ended a question. Um, <laughs> potential, lots of potential answers to that. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean... I what I'm not dentists. seeing that I was wondering if I would are dragons. Because oh, if this is yeah. Fromsburg, like... Which was presumably not called that until after Fromm became famous... Right. And he became famous by killing the dragon. You would have thought representations of dragons and or representations of dragons getting killed by from would have oh, yeah, featured like every European society that takes St. George as its patron saint. Exactly. Exactly. Um, 
maybe it's considered cursed to draw the thing. It's like, you know, how you don't say the fairies' names or something. You call them the fair folk. Or you don't you don't make images to of things that you're afraid of because it could summon them, that sort of thing. Is this where we came down? Yes. Okay, this is where we came down. Yes, we have All yet right. to go across to the little colonnade over there, the misty colonnade, I think. Okay, and I'm assuming the other side... Right, because there was, right, like this side over here is presumably the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. More or less. Well, I guess it is a circle. I guess we did go through the colonnade. We did on that one side. But then, yeah, over here is, so I think, so then that just leaves this bit up here in the north. Yeah. Yeah, okay. That's what I was looking at. Now these arches are much fancier than the other arches, and they don't have yeah. prominent keystones. Um, they look, the caps look more, more, uh, more slightly more Corinthian than I am. Yeah. Uh, Doric. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And notice that, like, um, you know, crenellated, like upside down crenellated design. Those little descending squares there f trace all the way up around the arches too. So definitely more decorative and yet not more pictorial. And I've not nope. seen a single dragon being killed by Fromm anywhere. Well, as we've seen, they're not very good at drawing people. Maybe that was one of the problems there. You'd Maybe think anyone who could draw that good of a horse head would... Draw. I can These draw still... people really well, but I can't draw a horse. Hmm. Okay, so we've got a hallway here. Okay, I'm seeing the same crenellated, like, tooth design, square tooth designs are on the bottoms of these columns. Mm -hmm. But although we're seeing clearer, you know, design consistencies, I'm mm -hmm. still not seeing anything else that tells us anything about their you know, stories or society. Might be a quest we had to take. Well, there, you know, don't doubt the quest text or some people might tell us a little bit more, but oh, oh, and that's it. Remember, the NPC you can't see is the Rukiric historian. Right, yeah, true. Nope. Presumably he knows a thing or two that we don't. You. Or he's looking for information. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes, that was Arnie Hathholt. Very good at horses, but couldn't draw people. <laughs> exactly. You could tell us the art history of these uh, of these people. Mm. Um, well, I was I paused to ask myself that question just a moment ago, JJ. The question of like maybe the horse head is the dragon. Maybe it's not a horse, but I think it's just it's too good a horse. It's not. A, yeah, it is to be a horse. Detailed. I think. But Nana Man would be more likely to be a dragon than that horse head. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Did Skada have wings? Did Skada have wings? Yeah, he was a worm, so by definition, I don't think he did. But I think it's very likely he didn't. The, the dragon. That is also how we insult dragons if we don't like them. Call them worms? In The Hobbit, they did, yeah. Yes. 
and and in this game. Yes. So I'm genuinely surprised that we did not encounter any boss mob of any kind. Just bats and little dragonets. Mm. Yeah, there was probably something we had to unlock by fetching such and such a thing. Maybe. Um, or maybe there's another entrance to this place we have to go to. Perhaps. Okay. Well... So we've definitely learned some things. And if this is the main keep down here, we had this sprawling, what? City, I think it has to be a city. It's, yeah, it looks like a city. It's just too big to have been one building. And there would have been, um, and there would have been Presumably smaller houses, wooden houses, um, as very few of these ruins that we see are house-sized, right? I mean, like, these ruins over here might have been part of a house, a large house down here, maybe. storehouses, granaries. Yeah. See, it's possible that this could have been a house, too, over here. But a bunch of, I mean, like a bunch of those halls that we were finding really do seem to be. Help me, help me, help me, help me. Something more significant. Lang flood branches? What kind of wood is that? Hmm. Do they mean like driftwood hmm. from the Lang flood? It's crafting area stuff. So it's... Well, I know, but like, I'm just wondering why they're yeah given up completely on the... it being a, a yeah. kind of a species of tree. Yes. No, it's just wood you found here. Good luck. Yeah, right. Exactly. It is a piece of wood of some kind, probably yeah. derived from some sort of tree. Oh wait, look, it's uh, it's an avonk. Uh, sort of gata things. Yeah. So are we meant to... Th I mean, this can't be very Skada-related no, either, though. No, I don't think it's a worm. It's not a worm. It's an avonk. It? Well, it says dragon kind. It's definitely devolved. Yeah. I mean, they're like... they. You know, the avonk have always been like part... You know, part alligator, part turtle, right? That's kind of what they I look honestly like. I anyway. thought they were alligators. I didn't right. think they were related to dragons at any point, but I guess that means dragons are reptilian. Or avonks are draconian, I don't know. Right. You'd think so. It's got it's scales. Definitely not, it's definitely not worried about blending in with the surroundings. But it's got hair, too, doesn't it? Yeah, this one's got a very short snout, too. The other ones had bigger snouts. Yeah, I don't fully understand Avonk. Avonk can quit my sight. <laughs> More or less what it makes me think of, too. Yeah. <laughs> now, one thing we haven't seen too many of is orcs. I mean, they built that whole bridge. Yeah. Don't they have Avonk's a camp over here? Just have we not gotten back to it? Yeah, maybe we kind of missed the camp. Oh, here's our path. Here's the bridge. 
Yep, yep. Hmm. So let's follow the path. Okay, well, I'm just kind of looking around. Well, all right. Hmm, it's getting late. This is a large peninsula. Why don't we look... Next week, we'll look at the rest of this, and I'm going to try to place... See what we can figure out about Scotland. All right, so the orcs are to the north. All right, so let's see what they're about. Let me just pause for a second to look up at this dwarf ruin up here. Still looks very dwarfish. Still looks very strangely above ground. Right. Dwarfish skyline. I just can't get past the weirdness of that phrase. Art Deco makes it look very New York. (laughs) (laughs) Um... Yeah. Interesting. Nancy suggests that the Avanc look more like Tolkien's drawings of dragons than the ones we're more used to. Um, That's right. In some ways, yeah. Kind of piggy. Well, they had sort of piggy snaps when he drew them, though. Yeah, and Tolkien was very fond of the, you know, the Eastern Serpentine Dragon. Yeah, the, 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 the Avancs definitely look more like, you know, you took a badger and gave him some false teeth. Well, they're, yeah, they're much more rotund than uh, uh, they're much more rotund than the other dragons, mm-hmm. Tolkien's dragons. All right. My, well, we should. I, I'm tempted to continue up to the northern half of the peninsula, but um, it's getting late and it's a large peninsula, mm-hmm. and we've explored like half of it, so we should not do that. Um, so let's continue here next time. We'll explore the rest, and then if we finish, we can see what conclusions we can come to and then head down uh, south away, around and up towards, what do you call it? This place. Lindelby, up in this direction. See how much we're permitted to do in that way. And then we're almost done with the Wells of Langford. We're getting there. Yeah. We're getting there. Oh, okay, so final conclusions about Fromsburg next time. More, uh, uh, more, yeah, so we're gonna, we'll, we'll meet again at the same place at that, uh, by the stable master run entirely by horses. Hlitzeld, yes, yes. Um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll finish looking around here, draw some conclusions, whatever we can about Fromsburg, and then we will, um, and then we will head back and see if we can we're going to be finishing the wells of Langflood at almost the same time as we finish the council of elrond um sooner or later we're gonna to have to go down to Eregion now to continue the journey with the fellowship but um i think we still have a few weeks Part before we get there yeah all right party alpha exactly very good well thanks everybody for joining us and i will see we'll be back next week before Mythmoot. so we shan't miss a week for Mythmoot uh, of exploring the lord of the rings so Off we continue. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Good night. Good night.